This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. For those seeking genuine transformation, SoundsTrue.com is your trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. Many voices, one journey. SoundsTrue.com. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Brent Kessel. Brent is a certified financial planner who was named one of the top wealth advisors in the United States. He, along with his teaching partner, Spencer Sherman, founded Abacus Wealth Partners. Brent's knowledge in the financial field has warranted appearances in the New York Times, Yoga Journal, and on CBS and ABC News. He's the author of It's Not About the Money, one of Kiplinger's top five business books of the year. He's currently working in collaboration with Spencer Sherman and Sounds True on the Money and Spirit Workshop, an online workshop as well as a home study course that's designed for integrating our spiritual and financial lives. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Brent and I spoke about the role of our unconscious mind when it comes to money. We also talked about a system of archetypes that he's developed that he calls the eight financial archetypes and what it might mean to find our enough point, that ability to feel as though we have enough financial resource in our life. Here's my very illuminating and grounded conversation with Brent Kessel. Brent, I know you're a yogi, someone who has been practicing Ashtanga yoga for two decades now, as well as a top financial planner. And I'd love to know right here at the start, the lessons from yoga specifically, the practice of yoga, that you think can be applied to how we manage our money. Well, they're sort of countless, but the biggest ones uh, are first and foremost to look inward. That I think the biggest differentiator of yoga compared to aerobics or running or many other forms of athletic activity are that we take our awareness into the body and even into the emotional body and look for what's unconscious. Um, so my experience in yoga has been that my best teachers have helped me wake up parts of my practice that were asleep before. I wasn't even thinking about working my legs in backbends for probably the first five or six years of practice. And now it's almost all of the focus. And so it was this you know, tremendous area of unconsciousness, and it, it made the backbends so much deeper in this kind of paradoxical way. So I find the same thing with money, that when we look into where we're unconscious around money, what are the expectations we have for what it'll give us or bring us? What are the places that we avoid uh, looking at money or looking at the impact of our financial decisions on other people or on the planet? We cause a lot more harm. So making the unconscious conscious is one huge area. And then the other really big area that applies to investing as much as anything is breathing through discomfort. I find that many people use money to make themselves feel better, that when we are sad or empty or angry 
we will resort to a tried and true financial behavior to make ourselves feel better. It might be going out and spending and shopping at the mall. It might be meddling with our investments too much, trying to jump out of something that's gone down and jump into something that's gone up or that we think will go up. It might be controlling our partner or spouse around their financial decisions. But it's almost always this attempt to get rid of discomfort with money. And I think yoga is this beautiful practice of intentionally putting ourselves into uncomfortable asanas or postures and then breathing. Mm -hmm. Now, this idea when it comes to money of making our unconscious conscious, well, of course, if it's unconscious, we don't know it's driving us. So how do we do this when it comes to our money? I think the first key is to look at where you're most out of balance. Um, this is a big part of the work that Spencer and I present in the Money and Spirit Workshop is around behavior patterns with money. And, I mean, it, it probably is worth saying first that if you're happy with it, if you're content with the way you're being with money and you don't... Then you're probably like one of a million people. Exactly. <laughs> you're probably not one in a million or one in ten million, but and you're probably not listening to this anyway. <laughs> and, um but that you know there's no agenda from our standpoint that you need to change that everybody needs to transform their relationship to money it's just that most of the clients who's come in, who've come into our offices at abacus or that we've worked with in workshop settings at you know different retreat centers have a money behavior they want to get rid of they they're tired of avoiding looking at their credit card statements and bank balances they're tired of constantly overspending. They're tired of being a workaholic and trying to accumulate more and more, even though they have enough. You know, it's different for everybody. But that's the first clue as to where you're, where you might be unconscious, because where our behaviors are imbalanced is generally where we are trying to compensate for that, for something that would make us uncomfortable if we didn't compensate. So if, if I just stopped my habit, which is excessive saving, I, I start to feel a bit insecure at first. And I have to look at what is the payoff of my excessive saving. And, you know, there's this sense of security or sense of getting rid of anxiety that saving has historically given me, but it's impermanent. It's, it's very impermanent. And so I think as spiritual seekers, we don't really want impermanent band-aids. We want to transform ourselves and find something that, that's got more integrity to it and, and much more kind of long-lasting quality to it. And that, I think, is the invitation to use money as a spiritual practice and to, and to look to these imbalanced behaviors for the areas of unconsciousness. Okay, so I identify an area that seems imbalanced. How do I discover what the unconscious roots are that that imbalanced behavior uh, might point to? Well, this is a lot of the practices and, and workbook exercises and guided meditations in the Money and Spirit Workshop. But the short answer is we generally need to trace back uh, to past experiences, often in childhood, sometimes in very early childhood, where something painful happened, and it, it's usually something painful. It can occasionally be something very pleasurable or that we see someone else going through that we think would be very pleasurable, like my friend Bobby just bought a lake house with his family, and Bobby's always so happy. It must be that having a lake house or having a lot of money makes people happy. 
whatever the experience is at that moment, we tend to have a set of feelings about it that we're not very conscious of. And as I said, nine times out of 10, this is a negative experience, something painful. And so we're feeling anger or sadness or shame. And we don't really want to face those feelings generally as human beings and certainly not as you know, 10-year-old or 15-year-old or 21-year-old human beings. And so what tends to happen is we cling to a money message in that moment. Our mind says, wow, you should always blank with money or you should never blank with money. And it, this is all happening at the unconscious level. But we internalize this message and we grasp onto it with sort of very, you know, dug-in fingernails and live by it. And it tends to get reinforced, you know, through multiple experiences in our lives until we can't actually see the world any other way. We're, we're so immersed in this sense of, you know, it might be for me that money is security. Um, I'm saying me in my most unconscious moments as a, as a kind of reflexive saver. Uh, for someone else, it might be that money is about enjoying life and really having sensory pleasures with money, and, and that's the best value of it. So we all have our own versions, um, and these are defined in the eight financial archetypes, which are one of the sessions in the Money and Spirit Workshop. But the key is to, you know, to be able to identify which is your dominant financial archetype and then go back and re-experience those feelings that you suppressed, essentially, earlier in life by clinging to these money messages. And that's where you start to loosen the grip of the financial archetype. Mm -hmm. Now, I want to go into the financial archetypes in just a moment, but mm -hmm. there's one line that I wrote down as I was looking through your book, It's Not About the Money. I wrote down the unconscious wins every time. What do you mean by that? Well, it's kind of a, it's a bit of a tongue-in-cheek saying. So the unconscious wins until it doesn't, right, which is defined by it's no longer unconscious. Um, what I mean by it is that our unconscious mind around money is much, much, much more powerful than we give it credit for. I've just I've seen so many workshop participants, clients over the years who know what they're supposed to do or what they want to do with money differently, but they just can't seem to. It's like there's this giant gravitational force that's pulling them in a different direction. Um, and I, I was asking myself this, you know, after having practiced for practiced as a certified financial planner for about 10 years, I said, why is it that this client can come in and not just one client, but client after client can come in and I can show them their financial planning projection and show them that as long as they invest this way and save this much um, and give this much to philanthropy, that their their financial picture will have this kind of outcome. It'll have this integrity. It'll look good and, and they'll be able to reach their goals. And yet, they can't seem to do it. And it's different for everybody, but one person may not be able to slow down and stop working and enjoy their money as much as I'm projecting they can. Another person might not be able to slow down their spending, and they just constantly go out and have these splurges that they can't seem to control. And yet another person can't seem to keep their hands off of their investments, and they keep making one bad investment decision after another. So that's when I really started applying my yoga practice and my meditation practice to financial planning and saying, you know, these are traditions that have studied suffering and awareness and consciousness and unconsciousness for millennia. And 
they must have something to tell us about this area in modern life that is so unconscious and so without awareness for many people. Really, that's what led to it. It's not about the money. And, it, you know, The Unconscious Wins Every Time is chapter two of that book. And the reason it comes so early is I want people recognizing that as a first step, noticing, wow, I really have been guided for the most part by my conditioning and not by conscious choice around how I want to live with money. Mm -hmm. Now, you also make what I thought was a bold statement. And now I'm quoting from the book. You say, we have the relationship with money that our unconscious mind wants right now. Mm -hmm. That's the statement, that whatever our financial situation is and our current relationship with money, that that is what our unconscious mind wants. Yeah, I think it's it wants is a tricky verb, but I would say it's what our unconscious mind is most comfortable with, most conditioned to. Um, so the unconscious mind, you know, one could argue doesn't really want, it doesn't really have volition, it just kind of is attuned to, to one way of being or another. And it's almost like a, a nervous system vibration thing. You know, some people have a resting heart rate of 60 and some people have a resting heart rate of 74. Um, and what decides that? Well, it's genetics and it's stress and it's diet and it's exercise and all these kinds of things. And it's almost like we have a, you know, your nervous system has a, a resting heart rate around money. And part of the way of looking at that is around scarcity or sufficiency. So are you constantly kind of just clawing to make ends meet. And even if you get a little windfall, somehow it magically evaporates within a month or two and you're back to the same level of scarcity that you've lived with for years. Or conversely, you always seem to have enough. You always seem to land on your feet. I've just marveled that most people don't seem to change very significantly this kind of resting heart rate idea or what the, what the unconscious mind is most attuned to as a way of being with money. And again, I mean, these bold statements that you're referencing, I'm trying to be interruptive in that part of the book. And Spencer and I are trying to be interruptive in the beginning of the Money and Spirit Workshop, because if what you've tried for all these years isn't really giving you what you want around money, you need to shake things up a bit. You need to say there's something going on here that's much deeper and much more powerful than you've ever realized. And you're going to have to take a new look, and it's going to require a lot more emotional fortitude and, and a willingness to bring your best personal growth and spiritual resources to bear on your relationship to money if you really do want to change. And then this system of the eight financial archetypes that you've developed, these are based around our eight different patterns of unconscious scripting that we have. And how did you come up with these particular eight, this original system that you've come up with? Yeah. Well, obviously, there's been a lot of archetype systems in the world, so this is not original thinking. It's more just my application of archetypal thinking to money. Um, I worked closely with a mentor of mine named Robert Strzok, who's a, a 40-year psychotherapist in Los Angeles and who had done a lot of thinking about archetypes and money for some years. So he was a big part of helping to define these. And Spencer and I, and certainly my work with clients, had a big influence as well. But I think, you know, that classically people talk about the spender, the saver, and then some people talk about the giver. 
so the person who's just you know money comes into their life and suddenly just gets spent that's the first sort of impulse to to do with money the saver money comes into their life and they instantly save it and the giver kind of no matter how much comes into their life they're always taking care of other people and perhaps taking more care of other people's needs than their own so for me, those had slightly different names. The saver had the same name, but I was looking, the spender spends for different reasons, different motivations. And so someone who spends money on sensory pleasure, they really enjoy the way clothes feel or the way a car drives uh, or looking at art on their walls. That person is what I call the pleasure seeker. And I want to just sort of go on record as saying there's nothing inherently negative about any of these. When people first hear about the eight financial archetypes, our, there's so much shame, I think, just embedded in our culture around money that we tend to hear them as labels, as negative sort of blaming labels. And I've tried as best as I can to use language that's neutral. So each one of them has positive attributes and negative attributes. But the pleasure seeker, you know, is is using money to experience sensory pleasure, which is a it's a great thing. I mean, it's the medicine that the saver most needs. It's often the the medicine that the caretaker most needs, and the caretaker is my version of of the giver, and that's someone who's using their money to express compassion and generosity. So that can be a wonderful thing, but it can also be a very self limiting thing if we're doing it to get emotional needs met, like wanting to feel needed, wanting to feel loved, and we're not able or willing to look at what those underlying needs are and instead use money to to fill them uh, to our detriment, where we're not taking care of our own needs enough. Okay, so I've got the pleasure seeker, the caretaker, and the saver. Can you introduce the other five archetypes and then how you came up with this? I mean, I understand you were working with a mentor on an archetype system, but was this based on observations of your clients or just keep going and let's get the map out? Sure, sure. Uh, so I'll, I'll define the other five. I've sort of gone a little out of order, so I'll do my best to remember all. <laughs> but the next one is the guardian. Um, the guardian is someone who is alert and prudent around money. Um, on the negative side, they can be excessively worried or anxious beyond what their financial circumstances warrant. But the positive side is they, they're not the kind of person who's going to get caught with a mortgage that's going to adjust and have their payment double or triple and they lose their house. They tend to do their research before making financial decisions. The empire builder is someone who thrives on the innovation and creativity necessary to build something of enduring value. So this is often a business. The negative side of an empire builder is their vision of their empire is so compelling that they'll be a workaholic. Uh, their relationships will suffer. They might actually sort of tread on many other people's needs, uh, either family needs or employees' needs, in order to reach their goals. But the positive side of the empire builder is they can be very um, focused on a need that society hasn't yet met and trying to build something larger than life that's got a, a legacy component to it that really does fill a societal need. The star, it's a little bit like the pleasure seeker in that it, the star often spends money, but instead of spending money uh, just for sensory pleasure, the star is often at least partially motivated by how other people will see him or her. There's a desire to be recognized a certain way. 
So the positive attribute of the star is that is when they are engaging in a behavior that really is worthy of that emulation. They're trying to do something that others should want to emulate or would want to emulate, and it's it's a good thing. It does good things for society to to model this behavior. And the negative side is is more obvious to us. It's when we just want to buy the flashier car so people will think we're more successful or perhaps more akin to Sounds True listeners uh, would be buying the Prius or the hybrid electric plug-in so people will think we're more environmental than we might really feel ourselves to be. So it's just it's looking at what am I doing to be recognized or approved of versus what am I doing sort of intrinsically just for myself, whether it's my sensory pleasure or other needs that I want my money to meet. Um, we have the idealist and the innocent left. That's right. So the idealist uh, uses money to, well, I should say they prioritize creativity or spiritual practice or social justice or social activism over financial pursuits in and of themselves. So the kind of lower functioning or negative attribute of the idealist is when we are more victimized. We feel like the system is inherently corrupt and there's a cynicism and a skepticism, but it's coupled with inaction. There's just, you know, there's kind of a lot of words and not a lot of action. The positive side of the idealist is when we may feel just the same way about the economic system or about social justice, but we are using our resources, our money, our time to affect that change, change that our deal, our ideals would most like to see in the world. And the innocent is someone who avoids putting significant attention on money and believes or hopes that life will work out better. So the innocent often has stories that go like the universe will always provide or I'll land on my feet because I always have. There's this inherent faith and trust and you could even say optimism. Um, and that's the positive side of the innocent. I mean, many savers, many guardians, many empire builders could use much more of that. The negative side of the innocent is that they they can be very avoidant. I don't want to look at my credit card debt. I don't want to know how much I spend or how much I make or how much I have or how much I owe. Um, those things are a bummer. They're a downer. Um, money's kind of a drag, and I'd just rather be in my heart or be in some other part of life and trust that money will take care of itself. So the interesting thing, I don't know if you've picked up on this, but the my experience is this is much like yoga, um, where the archetypes are merely a language. And by naming these different behavioral tendencies, and looking at what the the payoffs are that they are fulfilling for us, we can start to emphasize the ones that are most dormant. So much like my early teachers who said, strengthen your legs and your back bends, or you know, there's all kinds of examples in, in asana practice we could point to. In this financial archetype practice, what we're saying is look for the archetypes that are most dormant in you, the most unconscious tendencies and start to strengthen those, start to emulate the positive attributes of the archetypes that are most dormant, most asleep in you. And that's the best way to create some balance. And it's not going to be easy because in order to strengthen the dormant archetypes, the dominant archetypes have to let go of some of their death grip on our financial life. And that means facing some of the emotions that 
they've been there to protect all along. So this is where it starts to become much deeper personal growth work in order to create lasting change around money. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, just one question. I'm sure you get asked this a lot, but I can imagine people listening and saying, well, you know, 20% of me felt like this and 30% of me felt like that. And I'm a pastiche of all these different ones. I mean, is that a pretty common response? Extremely. Yeah. I, I, everybody's a combination of several. And uh, there's our quiz is in the workbook, I believe. And it's certainly on the uh, moneyandspiritworkshop.com website where one can take the relatively few questions. I think it's about five minutes uh, to get to the answer. And the answer is a combination of three with actual percentages uh, on the three dominant archetypes. And then you go from there. I mean, that's kind of cute and entertaining, but the real value of it is, well, now what? What do I do knowing that I'm 40% saver and 30% innocent and 30% idealist? How do I create balance? What are the actual imbalances that this represents in me? And that's, I think, where this work really starts to get interesting. And for me and for some of my clients, what I've noticed is that as we do that work, they shift around. You actually go through different phases in different parts of life where the guardian might have been really dominant for two or three years where you were very prudent, sometimes excessively anxious, and then you go through the shift and you're much more in a generosity sufficiency place where the innocent and the caretaker are the dominant ones. And so I think of it a lot like I do my asana practice. Um, how, you know, where, where's the fine tuning that I can do now? What's most dormant right now in my life that could use some more expression, use some more support to create this balance? And it's almost, I almost think of like the ultimate financial person, if there is such a thing, would be equally balanced among all eight. Mm-hmm. That's so That's so interesting to me. You know, as somebody who's very identified with one of these archetypes, when you mentioned, you know, well, you'll have to let go a little bit of the one that you're so identified with in order to start balancing your energy out with the other seven, and then you said, and that's where the real work is, can you loosen that, and you'll have to deal with the psychological issues underneath, I thought to myself, okay, Brent is pretty pretty psychologically sophisticated for a money guy. But then the question is, that work, that work of dealing with those underlying psychological issues that formed this identification with one of the archetypes, that is very deep work. That's, I mean, can you, you know, an online course, a, a book, an audio series? I mean, that's the sort of core material I've constellated my whole life around. How do you how do you see people really genuinely making those kinds of shifts? That's a great question. I think well, each tool takes us as far as it can take us, right? So you may have done classical psychotherapy for ten years, and that took you to a certain point, but maybe your therapy never actually got into money. And you know, so some of these areas, I mean, many many therapists have a certain avoidant personality around money. I don't want to generalize. I mean, I've got probably 15 therapists as clients in Abacus. My mom was a therapist. As I said, this mentor I was very close to as a therapist for 40 years. I, I love therapy and therapists and have tremendous respect for the work. And it seems like as a generalization, there's a lot of idealism among therapists and there's, a, there's some innocence. There's some avoidance around money for many therapists. So Sometimes what that can mean is that we, 
you know, there's almost a, a collusion going on where the therapist and the client are avoiding um, imbalanced financial behaviors because they're just not comfortable being talked about. Neither party is comfortable bringing them into the room. Um, so if I'm a sort of save-a-holic and I just keep saving and saving and saving more and more and more and thinking that's going to bring me some deeper ultimate security, I'm not actually being pushed or not, not growing um, you know, to let go of some of those savings and, and deal with the other side of it. Now, conversely, I've been around this work for years and years, and even though, as I said, I've had therapists in my family and, and much exposure to it, I hadn't done a lot of classical, just sort of traditional psychotherapy on myself until just the last few years. And I bumped up against stuff, bumped up against my own, you know, some anxieties that really had nothing to do with money now that needed that traditional psychotherapy to get through. So I think the online course and the workshop, the workbook, you know, are an incredible opening for most people that have experienced them, where we're shining a light in a part of life that is usually very, very private. It's usually quite shameful. Uh, There aren't very many experts who can both spot the financial patterns that are problematic and then map those onto the psychological causes and and emotional sort of crutches that they've become. And so that's, I think, what you know your production team and our work have really hopefully done a good job of, of putting out there is something that has both of those poles covered. And it's it's an entry point, you know, with a lot of tools that that someone who wants to really practice with the stuff can can use the guided meditations, the exercises to go very far, I think, into uncovering and changing these financial behavior patterns. And then if they get to a point where classical therapy is needed, hopefully they'll go and seek that or, or bring it into an existing relationship. I also think there are places where silent meditation practice is tremendously helpful beyond anything therapy could do and beyond anything our exercises could do. So, you know, I mean, that's the beautiful thing about Sounds True is you guys have so many of these resources and products for people to call on. But I think, you know, this combination of money and psychology hasn't been as deeply explored as I would hope it would, given how much suffering is in the culture around money. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, you seem to have intimated that the archetype that you've been the most strongly identified with is the saver. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, if there, if I had to choose one, it's that one. But there's definitely been guardian and empire builder and caretaker and, and even a lot of pleasure seeker the last 10 years. And just to, you could take any one of them, but I'd be curious if you could, uh, as an example and also just a, an act of transparency, uh, yeah. show us sort of how you broke that down, what was the underlying core story behind your identification with that archetype and what helped start to shift it for you? Yeah, no, it's a great question. Um, so yeah, I'll do the saver, uh, a story that I occasionally tell in my workshops and I may even tell it in the audio part of the program, uh, the money and spirit workshop is when I was 23 years old, I had been out of college for about a year and a half, two years, and I was a mortgage broker. And I, well, let me back up for a second, just so that 
your listeners can know why I'm telling this story. There's, as I said earlier, these archetypes are often formed by early experiences that are painful and that we then cling to a money message. So I'm going to share one of the stories that contributed to my saver archetype getting emboldened. So I'm a mortgage broker at 23, and I was already a saver. I'd been a good saver as a teenager and, you know, kind of always pretty frugal and seemed to always have more money than most of my friends. And uh, I liked that. I was identified with it. I remember being 10 years old and having my grandfather open my first bank account for me and seeing $100 in a bank savings passbook and just having this rush of of adrenaline and pleasure go through my body, you know, much like what I imagine people who love spending or going shopping have when they buy something they've been craving for a long time. But for me, it was saving. And so at 23, uh, because I had transitioned in this mortgage brokerage profession where I am only was only paid when a mortgage deal would close, I had actually racked up about $5,000 in credit card debt trying to just pay the rent and pay for food, etc., which was very uncomfortable. I really didn't like that feeling. But I had this ace in the hole, which was a mortgage deal on a piece of land in Venice Beach, California, uh, that I'd found a local bank that was willing to finance it. This is in 1991, so it was kind of in the middle of the last real estate recession when it was very hard to find loans on anything. And this bank uh, had said, yes, we'll do it. So it's a Friday afternoon. I'd gone over to my parents' house to visit and I called up the chief financial officer of the bank of the uh, the client of mine, which was a, a real estate development company, and I said, "So we're all close, set to close on Monday, right?" And he said, "Well, actually, there's something I, I didn't tell you, which is that I submitted the loan to another lender at the same time as I submitted it to you, and they've actually come back with an interest rate that's a quarter percent lower. So we're going to go with them." And I remember in this moment, everything just kind of turned white, and I was I was petrified. I mean, I felt this kind of, I don't know, hot maple syrup sort of textured thing drip down the back of my neck and the backs of my arms. It was just fear. It was just like if fear could be a physiological kind of substance. That's what I was sensing. And I somehow got off the phone and sat down on the bed and put my head in my hands. And I remember at that moment, saying to myself, I'm going to make so much money and save so much of it that this can never happen to me again. And it was this moment of like just believing, my mind saying, I've got to find a way to not feel this and believing that accumulating money would be that thing. And so it's still my dominant archetype. And I mean, I do say to people that don't don't expect your dominant archetype to just ever fully go away. And that's not the point either. It's It's your strength and it's what served you for a very long time. And when we think we can just do away with that, we tend to get very discouraged because you're not going to make much progress just trying to shut down something that's worked for you for this long. But what I've basically done is over the last 15 years or so, I've emphasized more and more pleasure-seeking and more and more caretaking, which were the two that I felt would create the most balance for that saver. Um, and you know, every time that I would push my limit a little more and make myself spend some money on something that would bring me sensory pleasure or a family member sensory pleasure – it the, the saver, I mean, there's one part of the saver that said, ah, I'm scared, I'm petrified, don't do this, um, you know, or let me go out and make some more money or save some more money so I can keep up with the spending that you're wanting to do. Um, but there was another kind of balancing point where 
I was actually enjoying my money rather than just kind of counting it. And that created more integrity. And I think just more, I was more fun to be around. Uh, it was more fun for myself to be around. And then with caretaking, which, you know, is gener- generosity and compassion, that's been the biggest one. Because I think the, the unconscious mantra of the saver is there's never enough. And when we're giving money away philanthropically, we're actually saying to the unconscious mind, there is enough. There's more than enough. Right? That's just by definition. Here, I'm handing something to someone else. Um, there must be more than enough. So whether or not our saver believes that, um, it it does start to retrain the unconscious, um, and it allows you know it allows the saver to let go a little bit. And I don't know. There's just there's more relaxedness, and in an ironic way, each time I've stretched these boundaries a bit, um, whether it's through pleasure seeking or caretaking, my income has shot up. And so the saver has actually been kind of rewarded by letting letting go a bit of how much control he was trying to have. That's a very interesting observation. It's wonderful. You know, talking about this idea of enough and finding enoughness, I know this is a theme throughout the Money and Spirit Workshop, this idea of sufficiency and finding mm-hmm. our enough point. How can you how can you help people with that, regardless of which archetype they identify with, but finding that place of enough? Well, I think the first step is us each for ourselves finding the motivation to want to find our enough point. That's a, and it's a huge first step because we we live in a culture where that's not the accepted norm. The accepted norm is you don't have enough, you can't possibly have enough, no one has enough, and people look at you funny. You know, if you sort of, it's like that old uh, um, story about the businessman who goes down to Mexico and encounters the fisherman sitting, you know, on the side of his boat at the end of a long day of work and, I don't know, hanging out, just looking at the sunset. And uh, the businessman says to the fisherman, well, why don't you buy a whole fleet of boats and then you could make so much more money and sell all your fish and and then you could retire and just relax here on this beach. And the fisherman looks at him kind of funny and says, well, that's kind of what I'm already doing. Um, so you do, it's sort of, it's it's hard to compute in this culture that, that it's possible to have enough and possible to relax. So it is possible. There are many people who do. There are many people with less money than you, me, any of your listeners who do. And the key moment is deciding that you want that um, and that you're going to focus on it and and make it happen. So once you've focused on it, then I think the, I mean, there's a number of exercises in the Money and Spirit Workshop about this, but the biggest uh, thing, it, it goes to what Thich Nhat Hanh often says and said to me during my interview of him for It's Not About the Money when I was at Plum Village a few years back, and that is that the the seeds that we water are the ones that grow the most. Um, or Adyashanti, another teacher I study with, likes to say, wherever you put your attention grows. So all these different traditions have, well, both those guys have a lot of Zen, but anyway, many traditions talk about wherever we put our attention, that grows. And I think if we put our attention on enoughness, on where we already have enough in our life, and it doesn't have to be about money. It can be where you have enough love. It can be where you have enough health. 
It can be where you have enough good weather. It can be where you have enough travel or food to eat or clean air to breathe. I mean, it really doesn't matter. It's the process of training the mind to focus on contentment. And the more you do that, the more it does it by itself. And it's it's this weird metaphysic thing that when you meet someone who has cultivated that practice, they exude this very magnetic energy. It's like you want to be around someone who doesn't need anything from you and doesn't need anything from their surroundings. They're at they're at rest, you know, and it's it's just this very attractive energy. And so in our financial lives, that shows up as an ability to make more money. You're able to sell more if you're in any kind of a sales position. You're able to make more money or get a better bonus or a bigger raise if you're an employee. You don't do it from a manipulative place just to make more money because that's, you know, then that sort of lack of integrity tends to break the whole thing apart. But it, you know, just putting that attention on where we already have enough is a huge part of it. And we've got, like I said, some exercises where we actually, you document that. And you even track some places where you have more than enough, where you're expending more resources than are really paying off for you into a certain area. And by backing off of those, by kind of taking resources away from those and just getting to that apex of your enoughness, not going beyond that apex, um, is a is a wonderful step as well because it just it starts to reverse all this programming that we have had for years and years and that we see all the time with advertising and and with friends and whoever that there isn't enough and if you buy this thing or make some more money or save some more money or listen to this course and do everything just right then you'll have enough and um, there's no there there there's you know there's nowhere to get so it's really it's the one of the most important ways to be in the present moment around money. Now, now, Brent, let's say I look at my life and I say, you know, I have enough friends, I have enough creative outlets, I have enough beauty, I have enough good weather, but, you know, I, I actually just don't feel like I have enough money, actual mm-hmm. cash. Mm-hmm. I have, you know, these this kind of debt or I wish I had, you know, th- this nicer furniture than I actually have. I don't feel like mm-hmm. I have enough money when it comes to that mm-hmm. one part of my life. Mm-hmm. What would you say to that person? Mm-hmm. No, it's a great, great question. Um, well, the first thing is there's nothing objective, right? There's no such thing as a definition of enough. Um, I mean, there's various bodies that try and define how what's the poverty level globally and and there's a lot of happiness studies that talk about once you make beyond a certain amount and it's usually a much lower amount than any of us would think it would be like thirty forty thousand dollars then you you know then there's no real added happiness uh that the behavioral psychologist can measure for that additional income so i mean often my first point is you could live on a lot less than you live on now and be happy, like from a purely objective standpoint, not talking about you, your psychology, your emotions, just purely objectively. There are people who live on less than you and are happy and content and feel like they have enough. And I can say that universally just because, you know, there's very, very few people that come to our workshops or buy a course like this or become clients that are living on, you know, six or eight or $10,000 a year. 
And I know people on those kinds of numbers who feel like they have enough. So once you accept that it's not an objective sort of measure, then at least we're getting into the realm of subjectivity of, well, what what would enough feel like to you? And there's different parts of us, right? So the one of the most kind of uh, the longest evolving parts of the mind is what the Buddhists call the wanting mind. And it's the part of us that craves. And it serves a very useful evolutionary function. It's how we feed ourselves. It's how we shelter ourselves. It's how we seek a mate to procreate with. Without wanting, without desire, you know, one could argue that there's just there's no growth. There's no kind of stretching to to evolve oneself or the species. But it's incessant. It's never sated. The wanting mind basically always wants more. It can never get enough. And so when one someone says to me here, when I catch myself saying to myself, there's not enough money, I have to ask what part of me is saying that and what would satisfy that part of me. So if that part of my mind that's saying you don't have enough says, well, if you just got an extra $5,000 into the bank and had that, those extra savings, then I'd be happy one of my practices that I give people is to audit that. So go ahead and do that. And, you know, let's make some other sacrifices to get that 5000 in the bank. But then we're going to come back and audit it. And we're going to write about, journal about, what were the promises that you made to yourself that you would feel when you got that 5000 And then what, what do you feel now? I mean, do you actually have the peace of mind? Do you have the contentment? Do you have the fun or the joy or the playfulness that, you know, whatever all the little qualities were that your mind told you you would get if you reached this goal, do you have them? And if you do that enough times, you start to realize the salesmanship, the sort of sleazy salesmanship of the wanting mind that you never quite get to the promised land that it's saying you'll get to with this sort of, you know, this idea of enough. Now, that's, I mean, that's just one version of it. There are obviously many, many people who are suffering a great deal and are out of work, don't have enough, have lost homes. So I'm not trying to minimize their plight. And in those situations, I mean, sometimes it's just out of control and there's nothing more they can do. They've, they've done everything they can, and, and that's really, they are victims of a very tough set of circumstances. If there are things that they can do, you know, there's a lot in the course about the choices one can make to get enough, essentially, and to redefine what enough means to you. So, you know, one thing I like to say to people is that financial planning is where you can have anything you want, you just can't have everything you want. And often not having enough, it's always a function of the I'm conditions. Not sure, I'm not sure I understood that, Brent. Can you explain that? Sorry, not to be dense, but... What, no, no, sure. what, is, what does that mean? I can have anything, so but not you, everything. You, right. So you could have, you can have like one thing, you know, you can, if you said to me, the one thing I really want to have is a house on the ocean where I can see the, the waves or, um, then, then everything else is in service of that. That may mean you need to work more hours than you do. It may need, mean you need to invest in a different way than you do. It may mean you have to curtail your other pleasure-seeking or your philanthropy or your caretaking of family members more than you do. So it's 
it's those kinds of trade-offs that we're often unwilling to make, that the wanting mind says, no, 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 I don't want to give anything up. I just want more. And that that's what the saying is trying to get at, is you can't have everything. So the other thing that's, that's really interesting about not having enough, especially the, the kind of person I just described who really has fallen on hard times, is that we we fear downscaling our lifestyle much more than we need to. Human beings are unbelievably adaptable. You know, we can easily go from a 2,400-square-foot house to an 800-square-foot apartment. And once we've gotten over sort of the image consciousness part of it, the actual impact on us, the actual day-to-day living experience of it is rarely as bad as we fear it's going to be before we go into it. So it's so often that, you know, the sense of not having enough is it's predicated on I've got to keep my same lifestyle going. And the only variables that I'm willing to focus on changing are making more income, but not spending less. And, you know, that's that's often what we have to tease apart. It goes back to the first part of our conversation today is what are the payoffs that living this lifestyle is giving you? Why have you become as kind of attached to it as you seem to be now? I mean, one interesting data point is that in the 50s, the average American home was 1,200 square feet. The average family had one car. There are obviously no cell phones. Um, there was one rotary dial phone typically in, you know, in middle class and upper middle class houses. And it was just you know, a much more Spartan existence. And yet that was the peak of happiness, uh, according to all the psychological studies in you know, the entire 235-year history of the country, or at least modern history of the country. And now the houses are 23 or 2,400 square feet on average. And everyone has their own car from age 16 on. And everyone has a cell phone, you know, even if you're living below the poverty line. And, you know, the actual sort of uh, quantitative measures of quality of life are so, so much higher. And yet people aren't as happy. So we're ridiculously adaptable. We, we adapt upwards very easily, and we can adapt downwards very easily, but we emotionally, psychologically don't want to. So you can tell, I mean, in your question, there's a lot of stuff that needs to be unpacked. Um, there's no simple answer to how do we get you enough, because that is such a, a hard-to-define term. Yeah, I thought your answer was very complete, very helpful. Brent, just one final question. Our program's called Insights at the Edge. And I'm curious, here you are, you're somebody who's really an expert at this nexus point of our inner deep psychology, money, and the spiritual quest. And I'm curious what questions you're asking now, what questions you're asking as you work with your clients as you see people starting to receive these teachings on money and spirit, what are you noodling around with inside? I think the biggest question for me, I've been very future-focused through most of my life and most of my career. I'm a financial planner, which by definition means we're planning your future. And there's rarely a whole lot of risk in the present moment, in the present year for the kinds of people we work with uh, at Abacus and even the kinds of people we work with in workshops. Um, but what I'm realizing more and more is that there really is no destination, that this isn't about doing everything just right and balancing your archetypes just right so that one day you get that gold star that says you're 
a master with money and you can chill out and relax now. So it's a practice. And I've realized this in my in my yoga practice now and certainly have realized it, I think, all along in my sitting practice. We even talk about all these pursuits in terms of an end goal, in terms of enlightenment or in terms of you know creating inner peace around money. And the, the, there's all these kinds of destinational descriptions. I guess the the more honest I am with myself and the more attention I pay to my own experience and to my clients' experiences, the more I realize there's no such thing. And so I think the the question I'm noodling around with most is how do we make the journey so compelling that it's that it's enough that just that one wants to be in this work and in these questions for its own sake. So I I want to figure out where I'm unconscious around money because in those moments of waking up, of experiencing new insight, I'm free and something relaxes and something lets go. And that just in and of itself is enough. Whether I get out of credit card debt or not, doesn't matter. Whether I get a million dollars into my 401k or not, it's incidental. It's really the insight and the moment-by-moment steps I'm taking to increase my consciousness that are the reason I'm here. And so I think the question, because that was how you asked me your question, you know, it, it's like, how do I, how do I make this work feel that way to to myself and to other people, you know, so that I invite people to enter, you know, if your listeners haven't yet bought the Money and Spirit Workshop, and and if they're planning to, I invite them to enter it with that spirit. Like this isn't a course you listen to for eight or nine hours and, you know, and do all the exercises in the workbook or however many you want to, and then you're done with it. You really enter it the way you enter yoga practice or meditation practice. It's something you may want. I mean, you don't know yet because you're not in it, but you're open to it becoming a real part of your life that you stay with. And it's, it's a wonderful opportunity because we touch money dozens of times a day. And we hear about our partner doing something with money that pisses us off or makes us jealous, or we see the neighbor come home with a new car, or our kids do something irresponsible or something very touching when they're generous with their money. You know, there's just these thousands and thousands of moments that money affects us. And so if we make it part of our spiritual practice, it's got tremendous ability to just continually wake us up and wake us up and wake us up to who we really are. And I think that's, to me, the the sort of cutting edge of where I'd like to be heading with this. Wonderful. I've been speaking with Brent Kessel, along with Spencer Sherman. They're the authors of a new home study course from Sounds True called the Money and Spirit Workshop, also available as a six-part online series beginning on March 21st. Brent, thank you so much for being with us on Insights at the Edge. Very illuminating and heartful. Very wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tammy. I enjoyed it. Soundstrue.com. Many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening. <laughs>